This fall, we've, we've been studying uh, the parables, um, these stories that, that Jesus tells um, in his teaching. And so I'm going to invite Camille up to, to tell our last parable of the fall uh, before we start our Advent season. This comes from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. So I'll be praying for Chris during this one. Okay. So, okay. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, and to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the, after the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. The second servant, who, who also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. Now, the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here you have what's yours. His master replied, You evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I return, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who did, that don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him outside into darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. This is the word of the Lord. So as I mentioned, these past couple of months we've explored some of Jesus' most potent teachings these little stories are like firecrackers, right? The problem is, far too often we've wrapped our hands around them and held them tightly, assuming we've wrung out everything they've had to offer us, that we've exhausted them, that we've learned everything that they've taught, when they threaten to really just blow our hand off when we hold them that tight. We've heard Jesus seemingly looking around and just kind of like, grabbing all sorts of things as powerful illustrations to communicate the kingdom of God that he was bringing about through his words, 
through his presence, through his challenging the paradigms of religion and politics and challenging the paradigms of what power looks like, what victory means. So he grabs on to something, and this is how he started the fall, as something as minuscule as a mustard seed to talk about the kingdom's spread, its, its growth, its strength and weakness, how maturity and flourishing means providing a place for the birds of the air to come and perch. Or he says maybe the kingdom is like a pearl or a treasure in a field. And one might, you know, the kingdom might actually require a little bit of under-the-table dealing, if we remember those stories well, to, to have it and to hold it but it's worth going all in on. Or maybe the kingdom's like a party. You remember those stories? Joey talked about one, but not a normal party. Not the kind of party that you painstakingly develop a guest list, and and this is not talking about Austin and Justina here who just had their wedding a couple weeks ago. It is a feast. It's even a wedding feast, but it's not the sort of party that you compile a guest list to, to to kind of prop yourself up or this best version of yourself. It's a party for the scoundrels. (laughs) Maybe it is like Yellow's Wedding. I got invited (laughs) to. It's a party for even the scoundrel. You remember that story? That lousy trust fund brother who took off and blew all dad's cash on parties and women. People like those people are the guest of honor. You're starting to get the picture. The kingdom is a, is a scandal. These stories help us bite off little parts of that scandal so we don't choke. <laughs> so we won't be so disoriented we can't grab onto it. It's like Moses in Exodus 33. These parables just help us catch a, a fleeting glimpse of the kingdom as it flies by, lest we're going to be undone by all of it, by looking at it in the face. So we receive this story of the talents, the valuable coins. It's the end of a uh, series of parables in in Matthew's gospel. Go back this week and read them. The first one in this chapter is a story of a fig tree telling the hour. It says if that fig tree is blooming, you know what's coming. This is kind of his, Jesus' paraphrase of, of Bob Dylan when he says, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. You just need a fig tree, you know. This is, maybe Dylan was, yeah. this is, there's also a lesson about Noah's preparedness, his faithful obedience. There's also a story of two slaves and tens, ten bridesmaids. The simple theme of all of these is that song I learned when I was growing up in church, stay awake, be ready, you do not know the hour when the Lord is coming, that's the theme. We're to be watchful, hopeful, careful, ready. When you start to understand the gathering momentum of these stories, that Matthew's gospel leads Jesus to the cross after this, some of our old, tame ways of reading these words of Scripture just become, well, a little too safe. These stories start to prepare us to understand just a little bit that the cross just might be the place where God takes the greatest risk. 
where God exposes Jesus to the worst that sin can do, lets him drink the cup of death, drink it to the dregs, so that he can completely disarm sin and death and usher in a kingdom. And this is a a greater kingdom. This is a kingdom greater than Egypt. It's greater than Babylon. It's greater than Rome or America or ISIS or North Korea or China. Or it's greater than even all the little kingdoms that we try to set up. My own little kingdom, your own, that we painstakingly try to protect. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to him. To one he gave five valuable coins, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. He gave each servant according to that servant's ability, and he left on his journey. Jesus tells a story, and he positions that kingdom of heaven. And when Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, that's his way of talking about the kingdom of God. He positions the kingdom of heaven as inherently unstable, as iffy. (laughs) If you walk around, if you feel like me sometimes, and you walk around just trying to wrap your head around it, if it feels like God's really distant, take heart. (laughs) Jesus, who next week will sing songs about calling him Emmanuel, God with us, he's with his followers as he's talking. He's already talking about God's presence in God's absence. That the kingdom occupies this weird space, this already here but not quite here space. It's this weird overlap in our lives. But it's also a fertile ground. It's where sometimes We're filled with purpose and confidence. We feel that kingdom so close. And sometimes we feel adrift and abandoned, like it's so far away. It's a space where faith can grow or faith can wither. And sometimes they happen (laughs) in the same week, in the same day. It's a space where we learn what it means to follow, what it means to trust, what it means to expect even when our eyes don't see it. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man leaving on a trip and trusting his servants with valuable gifts. So the rich man divvies out his cash according to each servant's ability. It's tempting to read this really safely, like investing advice, right? I think when we do that, we drain the risk out of it. We assume that the first two uh, servants make kind of can't-lose investments, right? Because they knew exactly what to do. And then we villainize the third for being paralyzed by uncertainty and fear. It's tempting to assume the center of gravity in this story is the bravery of the first two investors rather than the generosity and the trust of the master to hand them over to servants. I I don't know. I I don't know the background here, but I'm going to venture to say that servants are servants because they don't generally know much about investing. But remember when you were a kid and your your grandpa gave you like a quarter? (laughs) Do you remember that? When your grandpa gave you a quarter and said something like, don't spend it all in one place? Well, that is and that isn't what's going on here. 
The master is giving them a gift that is exciting, it is intimidating. He's not asking them to find a safe place for it. After putting their gifts to work, we find that the first two servants are called excellent, good, and faithful. They seemingly passed the test they didn't know they were taking. While the third received failing marks, he got an incomplete, he got evil and lazy marked up in red ink all over his paper because he didn't cut it loose, because he didn't risk, because he had an unhealthy understanding of the giver, I think, and a feeble understanding of the gift. First, the giver. It's been said we, we become what we worship. This is like a, a basic rule, and I, I don't think this is a church rule. I think this is, this is a human rule. If you worship coolness, you're certainly not going to associate with like uncouth mainstream garbage, right? Cool. If you worship knowledge, you'll read and you'll read and you'll read because research is safe and you could do it forever because actually putting pen to paper is really risky. <laughs> you might get graded. You, it might get revealed that you don't know it all. You should have just read one more book. <laughs> if you worship freedom, you're going to walk around saying no to good things. Friends that want to know you, even the bad parts of you that you try to hide, people that want to help you, opportunities that would require a little bit of commitment, a little bit of discomfort. You might have to choose, and choosing feels like missing out on all the other things. If you worship security, you'll do anything possible to avoid harm. You'll wrap yourself in bubble wrap or something. You'll stock up your pantry, your armory, your bank account. You'll put deadbolts on the doors. You'll take out an insurance policy. You'll move out to the suburbs. Or maybe you worship a God, and when I say God here, I, I mean a capital G God. That's kind of like that triune God of the Bible, but a little distorted. Maybe like the master, the third servant serves, you serve a hard man. This usually goes in one of two ways. If you serve this hard man, maybe like a hard man in a cloud with like a white beard, not my dad. <laughs> you can either become a hard man or woman in return, or you can become a fearful one. Notice though, the experience of the, the first two servants, it's almost like they think of their boss completely differently. Like, like they're serving a completely different person than the third. I don't think that they think he's mean and then just say, like, you only live once. I'm just going to try to luck out here, you know. I think they have a fundamentally different experience of the master. In their story, we see the master's risk and generosity and the servant's responsibility, risk, and then shared reward and celebration. For them, risk isn't the enemy. It's still there, but it's not the enemy. The master's risk gives them permission to take risk. They take it as permission. They take it as a challenge. They take it as participation. 
not his anxiety. This is grace versus fear. This is mission versus management. This is abundance versus scarcity. The risk and the gift of the master empower the first two and they completely incapacitate the third. What is God and his kingdom like to you? Ask yourself that. Ask yourself that this week. I'm not talking about the creed that you said that, you know, when you were a kid or maybe the statement of faith that you signed off at on your last church or maybe the product of the most recent theology book that you read. Not that God, but the God who your closest neighbor would say that you worship practically. (laughs) Working backwards from your life, who is your God? What is his kingdom like? So often our lives bear witness to God as a, as a hard man. It pushes us to operate out of fear, to kick it into overdrive when we're overwhelmed instead of just throwing our hands up and surrendering to God. <laughs> to ask God to show up and to save us. That's what God's people do. That's what the Psalms are all about. Not, I got a fix, I can work harder, but... Lord, how long until you show up? Because I don't know how to do this, and it's not going to work. And then we're also sometimes uh, tempted to interpret God's holiness, his total otherness from us as intimidating, as demanding, as demeaning. To do this is totally to misunderstand who he is and how he is is to misread his story. Our holy God calls and sets apart a people, his servants, and he gifts them while including them in his mission. He certainly expects a lot because he gives a lot, but no more than he's given. No more than he's equipped, no more than he's called, no more than he's made possible by his powerful spirit moving among us, so that the church's central confession, Jesus is Lord, that's like church 101. That's what we're about, right? Read Gospel of Luke. Jesus is Lord. It means that he's in control. It means that he cares, and it means that he gives good gifts. Jesus is Lord. So instead of whatever fearful third servant lives that we bear witness to? What if we worship a giver, fundamentally? What if God is into grace? What if God gives gifts? The most significant gift being his only begotten son. Wouldn't that change the whole script? Wouldn't that change how we live? Wouldn't that actually mean that we've we'd have to become more and more generous, more and more giving. I really like a theologian named Miroslav Volf on this. He says, God gives so that we can exist and flourish. But not only for that, God gives so that we can help others exist and flourish as well. God's gifts aim at making us generous givers not just fortunate receivers. Do you see the slight 
difference that's everything. God gives so that we in human measure can be givers too. We become what we worship. Unless we forget God is like Christ and Christ is like God. Colossians 1.5 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So if it feels like you can't see God, you can't, but you can see Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you see a perfect picture of who God is and how God is. So do the math here. The Christian life is about becoming more Christ-like, to grow in his image. And in doing so, we're growing in the image of the one who is in the image of God. This is pretty wild stuff. (laughs) This means that instead of bearing witness to lack and fear, instead of running from risk, we have a chance to, to eagerly trust, to trust in the goodness of the giver, to receive his gifts and put them into use in the world, to put them into circulation. Whether these gifts are great or small, or a lot or a few. Because when we do this, and another um, pastor that I like on this, Mandy Smith says, when we do this, it's like when we're kids, and it's like when you buy gifts for your father from the allowance that he gave you, right? Do you remember doing that for Christmas? This is how grace works. This is how the kingdom works. This is the logic. This is what the first two servants intuited in some way that they were standing in midstream of their master's generosity because understanding that gifts need to be put into use because burying a coin in the ground and then handing over to the master a damp, muddy piece of silver turns that gift into a burden and no gift at all. So that brings us to the gift. They misunderstood who the giver was. They also or the third servant also misunderstood the gift. As this week went on, I couldn't help but think about how tied together gifts and risk are. It's risky to give a gift. We're entering that gift-giving season, as all the commercials will remind us. Will they like it? Will it fit? Will they use it well? Will it go to waste? When you have a kid, you realize how risky giving is because like, you can give a kid a really awesome cookie and they'll just like, smear it all over their face and then like, trample on it. You're like, I could have eaten that cookie. It's also risky to receive a gift. Am I now in this person's debt <laughs> if I receive this? What do they expect from me? Is that really a gift? Are there strings attached? Do I have to share it? Why does she have more than me? Why does he not have as much as me? I think the same is true with our gifts from God. Right before Ephesians 4 talks about all those different gifts and abilities, we talked about that this summer, that God's given to the church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and what's the other one? What did I miss? We'll go back to shepherds. Yes, pastors. Yes, pastors. Yeah. Right before he talks about that, he says this little tidbit. 
says, and I quote in, in verse 7, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Seems like a little reminder for us. It's a little reminder for us not to look across the table. Not to get caught up in the comparison game that minimizes the great and varied gifts that we're given. It reminds us to trust that there will be enough. No, there's going to be more than enough in the real world, in real life, every day. It's understanding, like in this parable, that gifts well used, get this, that gifts well used multiply when they are unleashed. And the result, for the first two servants, that they knew this, the result was celebration. The result was the master saying, let's party. The result was also that gifts beget more gifts. You've been faithful over a little, I'll put you in charge of much. Fear and insecurity strangles any possibility for exponential blessing and growth. Since gifts are so tied to grace, that's what grace means, right? Is a gift. That's fundamental. Since gifts are so tied to grace, when we use gifts, they increase and they expand and they create possibility because that's what grace does. It's unwieldy. This happens not in spite of risk, but through risk, through weakness, through vulnerability, through trust. The third servant saw liability where there was an asset. He only had one coin to lose. Even if he blew it, he wasn't going to fall that far, right? He had almost everything to gain here. What if instead of running away from risk, we embraced it? What if we, just small risk, big risk, what if we rolled with it? What if like, we did some bit of like, and I don't know if I'm doing this right, like judo, where we like use that risk to work with us, to work for us, rather than to threaten to hurt us. If for no other reason than the fact that the story of Scripture attests over and over and over again that those are the best conditions for God to work, to work in surprising ways. Like open your Bibles from the beginning in Genesis and, and read about two old barren parents that are so laughably unsuited to be parents that God decides to start a people through them. That's what Isaac means. Laugh. <laughs> and then, that same story, that plan seems so threatened, so fragile, that Abraham all but sacrifices Isaac, all but mortgages the future of God's mission. But it kept going. <laughs> It flourished, it grew, it expanded. And then Israel might wander in the wilderness because of her own sin, the exile of her own disobedience, the oppression of her neighbors. And that continues to go. God continues to work, continues to interrupt, and continues to grow. And then fast forward to an unwed teen mom. And we'll, we'll hear this story a few times in the next month that goes on to bear the God-man, the long-expected Messiah. And then a cross, <laughs> a cross is transformed from an instrument of state torture to an instrument 
of salvation. And then a tomb, a tomb that cannot hold its occupant. In each of these cases, a good argument could have been made to default to safety, security, to hide and to bury, to minimize risk, to play it safe. It wouldn't have gotten too bad for God's people. But out of seeming despair, hope sprung. Out of foolishness, wisdom arose. And out of weakness, we've seen God's power. One commentator comments on the gifts in this parable and in God's salvation history. And he talks about Paul in the church and how Paul suggests that many gifts made to Israel had been transferred to the Gentiles. This is in Romans 11. All of the gifts of God work that way. One does not hoard, hide, or bury the promises, the sacraments, the ministry, joy, hope, justice, witness, suffering, salvation, or reconciliation. What the third slave did, strictly speaking, is impossible. For when the gifts are buried, they cease to exist. What are the gifts, great or small, many or few, that God has given you? That's the homework for this week. It's Thanksgiving week. This is like the perfect week for this. What are the gifts? What are the gifts he's given that are, are being used, that are to be spent, that are to be risk for others and for his kingdom? How are you bearing these? Faithfulness, faithfulness might just look like losing but it's never going to look like burying. It's never going to look like hiding. It's never going to look like hoarding, and it's not going to look like fear. That's not what faithfulness is. Lastly, to close, we talk about gratitude in our risk. If our buried gifts cease to be gifts at all, if the hiddenness of our gifts... I want... I want to struggle, I, I struggle with defining what I mean by gifts. Maybe you've been sitting there and this whole time and be like, what is he talking about? I don't just mean money. Like this, this, this passage is normally used like what I did earlier and said y'all should tithe, you know? Stop burying your coins in the yard and <laughs> in the mayonnaise jar. Yeah. But these gifts aren't just money. These gifts are vocational talent and skill. What are you doing with those? This gift is your personality, even when you might assume that it's not a gift, that it's a liability. <laughs> Maybe some have told you that. This gift is your time. Maybe you're in a season where you just have so much time. Maybe, maybe your gift is the season that you're in that has no time whatsoever. How are you using that? Maybe your gift is some sort of social capital that you have. People listen to you in your sphere. Maybe your gift is a life stage. Maybe your gift is singleness. Maybe your gift is some experience you had, good or traumatic. Maybe your gift is suffering. If we hide these because we're scared, if we're scared that we're going to fail, or if we're scared of some demanding 
God that doesn't look and sound like the picture of God in Scripture or the God we see when we look in the face of Jesus? If we're scared that we won't have enough or be enough, we don't understand gifts well. We choke them out instead of letting them fly. And I've seen this over and over. I've seen this like with people in this building right now. Ordinary people like you and I, gripped by God's spirit on mission in this world, in this neighborhood, willing to work on a very small scale towards hope, healing, and hospitality. We talk about those, and it can be so overwhelming to look at this world and to think about those and how we could ever get there. But y'all are teaching me how to do it on a small scale, (laughs) how to open doors, open tables, open your lives to someone else, someone that's real different than you, even when it costs a lot, even when it's really inconvenient, even when it's risky. I've seen, I've also seen outside of this church, I've seen families in this neighborhood use the gift of their families to try to jumpstart a neighborhood school that needs more attention, needs more support. This is powerful stuff. I I don't want to downplay the needs um, and and how hard this stuff is. I don't want to downplay that the results are not guaranteed with any of this. You might get hurt. You might lose. I don't want to downplay how likely it is that, that we might not get a return on investment for our coins or it might take a long time. But I also don't want to downplay the amazing things that God is doing with this sort of faith. This sort of willingness to put these gifts to use, to see opportunity and asset instead of lack and need. Because ultimately that's what gratitude is. That's what thanksgiving means practically. Not just saying thanks, you know, as, as parents of young kids, we, we really work hard to try to get our kids just to say thanks, even if they don't mean it. Maybe one day they'll mean it. But what thank, thanksgiving, what thankfulness is in practice is using a gift until it's fully spent for others. In a few moments, we'll share from this table. Sometimes it's called communion. Sometimes we call it Lord's Supper. And sometimes it's called Eucharist. Don't be afraid of that word. It's a Greek word. It's a little foreign to us, but it means thanksgiving. It means thanksgiving for a good gift. That good gift, of course, is Jesus' body and blood broken and poured out for our salvation on the cross. That good gift is a life being spent, wrung out completely for our sake, covering our sins. That good gift is God's greatest risk that he sent his son among enemies and let him drink death down so that we might be made friends, so that we could taste eternal life. So we give thanks with our words, but we give thanks with our lives. When we take that bread, when we take that cup, we pledge to be risky, So we might be rewarded with those words, excellent, good, faithful. Because we've been joined to, we've been fed by, we've been nourished, we grow up in Christ who is excellent, 
who's good, who's faithful. When we gather around the table, we anticipate, we look forward to the return with celebration, celebrate. And we look forward to the ways he'll continue to multiply and give us more and more to fulfill, to renew our measly efforts as his kingdom comes. You guys pray with me. Father, today we're so thankful. Lord, renovate our imaginations of who you are and how you are. Help us see you as a giver who gives good gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And help us risk, help us put those gifts out there. Help us put them in the circulation. Help us spend them up because there's more. You'll give more. You've given enough. You've given everything. Help us join to Jesus who showed us what a life spent as a gift looks like. Make us thankful people. Make us generous people. Make us risky people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.